Man, what a good passage to read. What a good passage to uh, be centered on this morning. Um, We are in John chapter 12, and uh, for those of you that slept since last time that we gathered, which is all of us, I hope, uh, let me remind you what the book of John is all about. We do this every week, right? So we should like know the purpose of the book of John. A few weeks ago, I was explaining that, and of course, Stephen had to put out on Groomy, hey, anybody know what the purpose of the book of John is? And none of you answered, because I think you just already knew what the answer was. You just didn't answer. But this is the purpose. It's right there at the end of the book, John 20, 31, for for any of us that have forgotten, these things. This, this book, he's done a lot of things, but these things were written. They were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing those things about Jesus, you may have life nowhere else but in his name. In the name of Jesus is where we find life. That's what the book of John is all about. That's what we purpose ourselves every week as we've gone through the book of John. Today is an interesting story. Uh, To catch us all up, Jesus is now entering into, has entered into Jerusalem. It's Holy Week for him. And like I said before, we're like in six months of Holy Week uh, as we go through the book of John. And so um, he's like, he's right there at the beginning of the week. The triumphal entry has happened, which uh, our friend Patrick Rowe preached on last week. And today, all of a sudden, some Greeks want to find Jesus, They're going up to Passover. They're most likely Gentiles like you and me. And all of a sudden, they've they've converted to Judaism along the way. Uh, And now they're hearing of this guy named Jesus, and they want to see him. And so they go to Philip, who goes to Andrew, and they finally get to Jesus, and Jesus lays it down for them. But let me just read this first part of 20, 21, and 22, because it serves as an introduction and an invitation for us to join these Greeks to be these Greeks, to be these Gentiles who are are on this journey and yet are we asking some questions? This is the questions they've asked. And actually, they just don't even say what a question is. They just say they want to see him. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And the curiosity got the best of them. So these came to Philip, it was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip didn't know what to do with himself, so he went to Andrew. He was like, Andrew, what do we do with these guys? We're over here about Passover. We got some Greeks going, Greeks want to see Jesus. What do we do? Andrew and Philip, they went and told Jesus. We don't know what the question was. We don't know what they asked, but we do know the answer. We do know that they, they had a curiosity to go and see Jesus for who he truly is. They had a curiosity that went beyond settling for his reputation. And so I wonder if we can be invited into that kind of curiosity here at the Grove this morning. I wonder if we can be invited by these Greeks who were willing to risk whatever they had in Judaism, who they'd already given up their own livelihood with with whatever Gentile faith they had, and then converted into Judaism, and now we're even more curious about Jesus. I wonder if we have a heart that's seeking after Jesus. I wonder if we are settling in for a reputation of Jesus and not actually the person of Jesus. Are we settling for a watered down version of Jesus or are we willing to see Jesus for who he truly is? Because when we're face to face with him, it may mean that we have to admit that we were wrong about a lot of things in life. Actually, it will mean that. So I wonder if we have a heart today that is seeking Jesus. This story serves to invite us to examine where we are with the Messiah. Only hearing about him and pressing on with life that you've made work without him and you're satisfied with, or are we beckoned into something more? 
Jesus will tell us today that the Christian life is hard, but it's worth it. So the question is, will you heed this invitation to come and have life, to grasp hold of the life that is truly life? And the only way to do that is to, de- is to die. There's no exception to that rule. You can't, you can't live and then also try and live. No, the, the Bible, Jesus would say, no, in order to find life, you first have to lay yours down. And so today, this gospel principle is here for all of us, and that is this, that death leads to life. It's absolutely backwards, absolutely backwards to how we actually live. We live a long life that eventually leads to death, and Jesus flips it. He says, if you want to live, you're going to have to die first. That's the gospel principle. That's what leads us in all of life. It's what he says in 23 through 26. Let me read it. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What a great promise. The king of all creation is going to honor you for whatever you've done in the name of Jesus. That's the promise that the Father will honor you. Those of you know that some of us, that we, we've, we're, we're headed to uh, South Asia again in January, and as we do that, one of, the, one of the, the driving verses for our partners in South Asia was that verse right there. The fact that the God of all creation will honor us, what have we done? What, what can we do? It's a generosity that flows from a good father. Jesus starts that passage by saying, the hour has come. This is the thing that Jesus has been referencing since John 2 when Mary goes to Jesus and goes, hey, remember this story? Like we started out with this beautiful story uh, in Cana where Jesus is at a wedding. They've run out of wine and Mary knows who Jesus is and goes, hmm, you can do this. Jesus looks at her, this is not my time. It's not my hour. In John 7 and then John 8, what we find is that those that are, 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 are kind of surrounding Jesus, they want to arrest Jesus, they want to kill Jesus, and he slips away from their hands. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now in John 12, the hour has come. Well, what has this all been pointing to? And Jesus would say, this is all pointing for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when he says the Son of Man is going to be glorified, we're thinking, okay, now's the time. We're ready to go. This Messiah is here. Rome is going to be overthrown. And yet that's not what happened. He then starts to talk about dying in this grain of wheat. And they're looking for victory. And all of a sudden, Jesus says it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified if a grain of wheat falls. And he just starts going straight into death because in Jesus' kingdom, glory and death are closely related. They go hand in hand. Not glory in life, glory and death. And so he starts in on this passage about this grain of wheat. And what he's really talking about is himself. But he's using this grain of wheat, a very common reference for them, in a time of harvest. Uh, they, they would have, have seen this, right? But he says this, that a grain of wheat, 
It has to fall to the earth and die. Otherwise, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So all of a sudden, Jesus is focusing on his own death. And if the, he says this, if the grain lays in a bag or on a shelf, it will not fulfill its purpose. The entire purpose for which Jesus came to earth was so that, he, Luke says, that he would seek and save the lost. First John 3 would say that the whole purpose, the Son of Man came, is to destroy the works of the devil. And the way that Jesus is going to do that is by being buried in the earth. By, by laying it himself down into the dirt, just like a grain of wheat. He says, if he stays up on the shelf or if it's in a sack somewhere, it will not fulfill its purpose, but Jesus is coming to fulfill this very purpose, to redeem, to redeem that which was lost. Amazing statement by Jesus that he would pursue burial after death, then resurrection to give us life. In order to honor his father and to give life to others, he had to fall into the earth to die. And then and only then will he be raised up. He will not bear a fruit of harvest of life if he does not first die. And when he dies, he bears much fruit. You are the evidence of that fruit. From every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation is this beautiful harvest that Jesus lays down his life to gain. That's the gospel principle in verse 25. It says that death leads to life. It's not just about this grain of wheat and it's not just about Jesus, but also he says whoever, in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death leads to life. It's absolutely backwards, right? But to meet Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, Christians, Brothers and sisters, to enjoy Jesus every day, even after we have met him, we must follow Jesus to the cross and lay down our preferences, lay down our desires to find fulfillment somewhere else outside of Jesus in the dirt. Not how much you know, not who you know, not how much you can accomplish. Nothing matters except being known by Jesus. And so we are called then to lay our lives down just like Jesus did. It's only then, only then when we put our lives, our preferences, our, our desires, our, our pursuits in life, only after we put them in the dirt will something of resurrection start to take root and eventually bear fruit. Only after we put it in the dirt, after we bury it and put it to death. I'm putting you, this all before you because well, I'll just say this. Like the most miserable Christians that I know are those that come to Jesus thinking that he's gonna do things that he never promised to do. He didn't promise to take away all your problems. He didn't promise to take away your pain or your suffering or your difficulty. No, instead, the promise that he made was that life is fully available to you. Life is fully available to you, but... You have to die first. And so, instead, we've got to bring our preferences, our personality, your Enneagram number. I know that we all love the Enneagram, but you've got to put your Enneagram number at the feet of Jesus, right? For those of you that are, like, are all into the Enneagram right now, I get it, it's fun, but it ain't the gospel. That's the power. 
That's who you are, your sons and daughters. So we lay that down at the cross. We, we, we lay down our rights to say what we want, to live like we want, to do what we want. And, and if we still want those things, if we still want our preferences to just reign in our life, let us take those things, those I want to live like I want, do what I want, feel like I want. doesn't matter what Jesus did. Let's bring all that to the foot of the cross and let's look up at dying Jesus and do we still want these things? And if we do, may we then heed the call that he said when he was here, if anyone would come after me, on a continual basis, let them deny themselves and take up my cross daily and follow me. Do we still want our preferences? Do we still want Jesus to do things that he never said he would do? Well, we come to him, surrendered, burying that which we held on so tightly for life. And going, I don't know what life is like with you, but I know this doesn't work. It only gives me momentary pleasures. Simple satisfactions in life, but nothing remains. The fruit that you said would remain, it comes, it comes to burying that and living in Christ. That's what Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, writing later on, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Right? I'm just gonna wait for it to come on the screen. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. We need to see it, not just hear it. Is it up? There it is. Come on. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Do you still live? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Will we live our own life apart from the vine? Or will we live wholly detached and dependent upon Jesus and have his fruit be born in our lives. This is hard though, right? This is, this, is, this is truly one of the most difficult things that Jesus would put before us, that if we want to live, we gotta put to death the things that we value so much. Because this is how it, why it's so, so difficult, it's because we believe half-truths. And so some of the half-truths or full lies that we believe is that my sacrifice isn't worth it. My sacrifice isn't worth giving up my momentary pleasure and yet the promise before us is that death now will lead to fruit later. The lie that we believe now is that following Jesus is about making life work, kind of putting it all in nice and neat little boxes. But the promise that we have is that making life work without Jesus is like walking around a grave and con convincing yourself, my life is good. I love it. It's not good. Because you're in a grave. The lie that we believe is that we would demand Jesus to serve us. We are surprised when Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. The promise that we have is that if we become servants of Jesus, we get honored by our Father. See, in the suburbs, we want comfort. We want X to look good. We want to avoid inconvenience. We retreat behind gates and garages that are seemingly always closed to the things that are outside of those garages, right? 
the suffering that's just outside of those gates and those garages, we've closed our lives up to those. We make more money to pay off more objects of pleasure and security and comfort and to show off just how well we've performed in our vocation and we show off the latest thing as a result of how good we are. And to top it all off, we take Jesus with us wherever we go, only instead of him reigning and ruling in our heart, we've stuffed him in our pocket like some rabbit's foot that we rub whenever we need him to come out of our pocket and do something for us. He's some cosmic rabbit's foot or a genie waiting to be rubbed for good luck when we pursue our own interests in the name of Jesus. And then we wonder, why didn't you bless this, Lord? Because he never said he would. What will rescue us from redefining life as living that way of putting comfort and security and power and pleasure before our very eyes? What will rescue us from that? How was it that Jesus was rescued from that? How was it that, what was it that drove him? And what can drive us as we live with this gospel principle fueling us? See, this is the struggle that we find in verse 27, that he says this, now is my soul troubled with all this thought of glory. It's there, the time is there, but I know I have to pass through death first. That's the principle, and he's gonna live it out. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? See, this is the pain that we find in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the book of Matthew, when he's just crying out to his father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is it that propels Jesus to fall to the earth and die? Is it the prospect of the harvest? That millions from all nations will come to him? The fact that, we will that he will finally be seen, like for me, if I was Jesus, I would go, they're gonna finally know who I am. They're gonna finally get it. They're gonna finally see it. Was it that, that he would finally be vindicated? No, the thing that compels him is, is his love. His love for his father. Love for his father that would come first and then that would flow out into his love for you, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But it was his love for his father that he would say this in verse 27, the end of it. So no, 28. Now is my soul troubled? What shall I say? Father, save me? No, Father, glorify your name. There's something deeper within Jesus when faced with the difficulties of discipline, of loving his father. There's something weightier in his soul. It's what C.S. Lewis called the weight of glory. There's something heavier in Jesus' soul rather than saving himself was to lay himself down so that others might live. And that would be the thing that would glorify his father. See, Jesus' eyes are not just fixed on the cross, but on the glory of God. It is not just that Jesus came to glorify, honor, worship, give credit to the name of the Father, but the Father would also honor the Son. That's why at the end of verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name, and the, and the voice comes from heaven. And some people thought it was an angel, and some people thought it was thunder. Like, could you just imagine yourself standing there, and all of a sudden, thunderstorms break out? And some people are like, whoa, did y'all hear that? He just said he was gonna glorify the name. We're like, I, don't, I didn't hear that, I just heard thunder. And all of a sudden, his voice comes down from heaven. It happened once at Jesus' baptism. It happened again in the transfiguration when the Father from heaven wanted people to know who Jesus was. And all of a sudden, he was gonna give the Father, was gonna share his glory with the Son. Man, what a beautiful sight that may have been. 
But we're faced with this same dilemma that Jesus has, right? Our, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Do we realize that that is, that is the wrong prayer to save me from discipline, from, from, from discomforts, from deaths, from inconveniences? Or, or are we gonna resolve, Father, glorify your name? Will we resolve that the weight of glory for the Father is of greater importance? Will we resolve that our purpose is to glorify God in all that we do? Eating, drinking, Facebooking, spousing, parenting, spending, saving, vacationing, working, playing, relating, forgiving or not forgiving, showing mercy or not showing mercy, disciplining or not disciplining your kids, revenging or just not revenging others, sharing the gospel or not sharing the gospel, choosing to sin or not choosing to sin. And any other thing, will we seek to lift up our name or will we seek to lift up the name of Jesus? Because this truth stands before us from John 8. When Jesus said this, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Do we believe that? Do we believe that when we go to work? Do we believe that when we're on social media? Do we believe that as we love our neighbors? Do we believe that when your wife's out of town? We believe that. It's easy to purpose to do, but in the payoff moments of life, the voices of instant pleasure and shortcuts to satisfaction seem all too powerful to say no to. So how will we do this? How will we pursue God's glory and not our own? How will we not end up with a life that Jesus would say, it's nothing if we seek our own glory? I told Rodney and Matt this, that there's a, a, a principle from physics today that's gonna be in our spiritual life. Get excited. It's called the principle of displacement. And the principle of displacement goes like this. You, 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 you recognize this whenever uh, like you go take a bath or you give your kids a bath. Or when you like put ice in the cup first and not water. Because when you like take a bath, you fill the tub up and you're like, that's good. And then you get in it and it basically almost overflows. That's called the principle of displacement. Something of more density gets into another substance and it pushes the less dense substance out. Are you guys following me? Okay. Like I'm not kidding you right now. This is the key to the spiritual life. The principle of displacement. I reference this a lot in my mind. Your glory is the water. God's glory is you getting in the bath. It's heavier. It's weightier. It pushes out the things that you want to do for yourself. If you think about it in a, in a, in a glass, like if you have a glass full of water, if I was a good teacher, I would have had all these like props and stuff. I'm not. So, but it is, it, that doesn't make Facebook if you don't do the props. So this won't make it, but that's all right. Um, so, so like, the, but the reality is, right, so we have a glass, right, and it's full of water. If we start dumping rocks in there, the water's gonna come out because the rocks are more dense than the water. Keep just explaining it in different ways so maybe it'll get to us because that is what it means to live for the glory of God and not your own glory. That's what gives you the power and the fuel to be able to go, you know what, man, like this is, uh, there's a momentary pleasure in this. There's a, there's a simple satisfaction in this, but there's something weightier in my soul that's gonna drive out that less important stuff. That's what was going on in Jesus. The, the weight of glory drove him. 
It was to glorify his father in heaven. But it didn't stop there, right? No, he says in verse 30, when the voice came from heaven, just like with, with Jesus, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's like, man, like this is for y'all. This isn't for me. I don't need this right now. The voice is coming from heaven, and it's not, it's not lifting my spirit, although my, hev- my spirit is heavy. No, this, this, this is for you. Verse 30, this voice came for your sake, not mine. It is for us. Jesus, whose death is imminent, I want you to think about this, his death is imminent, is still thinking about you. Still thinking about the people that are gathered around Jesus in this first part of Holy Week. So still thinking about them. Going, I, I, I appreciate it, Father, but I know that was for you. It was for these people to hear that he is glorifying his name. Jesus knows that there is a tough struggle between the sin and the flesh, between good and evil in this world and in our hearts, and he gives us this great promise in 31 and 32. This voice came for your sake, it's not for mine. Now he says this, these are the promises. Now is the judgment of this world. For all the time in the book of John that they've been judging Jesus, he flips it on them and says, judgment is now here for you. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The ruler of this world will be cast out when the Son of Man falls to the earth. What he is saying to us is, don't trust your eyes on this. By the end of the week, you're gonna think that it's over. By the end of the, the, the week, you're gonna think that death has truly, is the last word. Don't trust your eyes on this. There is a cosmic and spiritual war that is happening, and though it will look like the Son of Man has been covered up into darkness, truly, truly, the light is going to come back. Don't trust your eyes. The darkness will not overcome the earth in the spiritual world. There will be a glorious victory. And Jesus' appeal to you and me here at the end is don't wait until you know for sure who's going to win to place your bets. See, no one wins in that situation. No, instead, push all into the center of the table on Jesus, even when you think darkness has won. Jesus' appeal is that we would not wait to figure out who's going to win, darkness or light, because rest assured The victory has been won. And if you've forgotten, follow with me. We're going through. John 16, 33, right at the end of his life. This is, again, part of his final week. It says this. This is what Jesus said to his guys. When he's telling them he's about to die, he says, I've said these these things to you that in me you may have peace. All your anxieties can go away. All your your fears can go away. In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Colossians 2.15, if we think Satan is winning, Colossians 2.15 would say this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 1 John 4, 4, little children, oh, little children, you are far, you are from God, not far from God, you are from God, and you have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
We need to be reminded of these truths over and over again because this is what makes it all worth it. This victory that's been secured in Christ is what makes every sacrifice, every piece of suffering worth it. Is God's glory. That we would have some, some sight of the glory of God. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, that when we're suffering, let us not just think about these momentary sufferings, but let us think about these, this beautiful glory that is stored up for us. Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is suffering in this world, and yet if the only thing, the, the major thing that makes that bearable is that there's glory being revealed to us in eternity. So as we close, we rejoin the Greeks that are seeking Jesus at the beginning of this story. And, we, and the question remains, are we, are we ready to seek the Jesus who will bid us come and die? Will we, will we hear that call? Will we see him for who he is as the Messiah, as the king over all things and all people, and, and that he will freely receive anyone who would come after him? What a beautiful promise. And yet, to come after him, you must hate that's what it says. It says you got to hate your life in this world. Will you hate your life in this world? Will you put to death all to which you have clung to for many years? Will you still go after him if that's what it means to follow and love Jesus? Will you still follow him? When it looks like he's dead, when it looks like things are silent, when he doesn't answer your prayers, when he looks like he's too distant to hear your prayers, when he looks defeated in this world, will you still heed his call to come and die so that you might find the life that is truly life? Or, or will you prefer something lighter? Fill the bathtub. Will you prefer something lighter? Something satisfying, yes, temporarily, but it's temporary and it's promised to take the edge off. Because Jesus reminds you towards the end of this passage, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons and daughters of the light. Will you heed that call? Will you follow him into the grave, putting to death those things that war against the spirit so that his life would be resurrected in yours. Let's pray together. We can't do this without your spirit. We can't do this without your help. We can't do this without something weightier in our souls. Will we live for our own glory? Will we live for the glory of God? Will we work for our own glory to get recognition so that other people can see how good we are? Or will we work for the glory of God and see everybody sees how great Jesus is? Will we parent? Will we stay at home? Will we, will we spend? Will we save? Will we give our gifts? Will we, will we relate with each other? Will we forgive one another? Will we pursue someone else's interest over our own? The betterment of someone else, knowing that it will cost us some things? Will we inconvenience our calendars 
so that we can see Christ grow up in others? These questions are before us every single moment. So who will we be exhausted for? We'll be exhausted. We're going to be exhausted. Like that's just the reality, Jesus. We know we're going to be tired at the end of the day. That's why you created sleep so that we could be recharged, renewed, refreshed, get after it again, only to be tired. So at the end of the day, when we're exhausted and we crawl into bed with nothing left, for whom have we poured our lives out for? For ourselves? For our children? For our bosses? For the glory of Jesus. Pray that we would pour ourselves out for all those things. But with the mindset and with the vision of Jesus having poured everything out for us. So whatever it is this, Lord, this week, Holy Spirit, help us, counsel us, correct us, guide us, you're alive, Holy Spirit. Let us not live like you're some distant cousin. You're, you're in us. So remind us of these things this week. May we be poured out for the glory of God and may we be poured out for the good of this city, for our kids, for each other, least of all for ourselves. Help us, Holy Spirit. Keep our minds affection upon you as we sing and as we respond and as in a minute when we're sent out. Be our vision, holy, holy God, and help us. Amen.